I'm Caleb. I serve as one of the pastors here. I'm going to read God's Word first before we get rolling. So we'll be in John 13, verse 31. It should be on the screen um, for you if you don't have a, have a copy. Verse 31, when he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And we'll glorify him at once. Little children, I'm, I'm with you a little while longer. You'll look for me. And, and just as I told the Jews, so now I'll tell you. Where I'm going, you can't come. But I give you this new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. And Jesus replied, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? It's truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me at least three times. So if you know anything about me, I'm just going to let you in on a little secret. I am a massive apple lover. It's like, it's unhealthy. I'm not ashamed of it. I'll just, I'm going to confess it, but I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. I love Apple. I think it, maybe it's just because they're superior uh, to, to all things uh, Android. Um, they just have this kind of appeal to it. It's probably their marketing um, strategies that, that they use. But Steve Jobs, who was the, the CEO before he passed, he said one of his greatest aims with Apple was not necessarily reinventing anything. They're not really known for that. The computer was already built when Apple came out. Internet was already a thing. But, but for Apple, it wasn't so much a new thing, but it was making it, making it better, making it more attractive, as, as Jobs would, would aim to do. And the first store that opened was in 2001. And this was a new concept. Uh, people, people weren't really doing this with, with their products uh, the way that Apple was doing it. Um, they opened a store in 2001, and nobody bought anything. There were maybe, for every 100 customers, maybe one person would buy something. And, but for everybody else, they would say that as, as a failure, right? You come into a store, you don't buy anything, that's, that's a loss. But for Apple, it was different. For them, it was, it was backwards. They, they were cool with that. They were okay with the fact that People right then weren't buying anything because to them, the most important thing was rapport with their community. They wanted to actually build relationships with people and be people that others could count on, that they could trust. The Genius Bar, that was a new thing, the, the fact that people were there on hand to, to help you. People were still trying to figure that out, but, but the whole thing for Apple is that they wanted to build rapport. And so eventually, it took some years, some tenacity, but eventually, as Fast Company Magazine would say, Apple became the most successful retail concept of all time. So the guy who came up with the concept, his name was Ron Johnson. Um, we can thank him for the, for the Apple store. He said, people really love our stores because we're more than a store. We're a place where people belong. And if Apple can get that, a store that sells a product 
man, why can we not? Why is it actually so hard for the church to grab a hold of something that Apple is doing so well? That it's an enticing, contagious community. And so that's my hope for as, as we read through this together, as we learn a new commandment that Jesus gave us, my hope is that we come out of this compelled, exhorted, encouraged to be a community that is so contagious for people that they want to come in on this because they see how we care about each other. They see the self-sacrifice. They see this type of love that, that they want in on. So that's my hope, and that's really, I think, the main point of, of this passage. Um, so the church, I, I titled this Marks of, of the Church. The church is really built uh, on a few things. The first one is the love and the glory of Christ. So going back to verse 31. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. So here's the, here's the deal here. I'm going to start my... Uh, forgot to do that. A few verses before this, one of the disciples of Jesus, who had walked with these guys for three years, his name was Judas, he had left to betray them. So just imagine that. Imagine that you had walked with this guy. He was your friend. He was your brother. He was somebody that you counted on. This dude carried the money for the whole, the whole band of disciples, and he, and he had left. And so Jesus says, right when, right when he had left, he says, now, now the Son of Man is being glorified. All before this, it was the hour has, has not yet come. Jesus had said, my hour had not yet come. But right when Judas had left and he had gone to go betray Jesus, the plan that the Father had set in motion from the beginning of time, it was, it was here. It was happening. And Jesus makes this statement, now the Son of Man is being glorified. So to give some context of that, that's a phrase that Jesus uses a lot for himself. Actually, he uses it way more than he uses the word Messiah. He calls himself the Son of Man. And so it's really important and, and helpful, I think, if we can get some context of what the Son of Man is, because it's going to set up not just the rest of the story, but it sets the stage for the Bible. So the Son of Man, it's from Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. That should be up there. Uh, in my vision, this is Daniel talking, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So before, before these verses in chapter 7, Daniel, who's a prophet, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus had even walked the earth, Daniel has this dream, and it's kind of a messed up dream, if you've read Daniel 7 before. He has this vision about these beasts that are roaming the earth. They're terrorizing God's world. And they're like horrifying look. I wish I, wish I could have found like a picture. Um, I mean, they're, they're nasty. 
Um, and there's four of them. And there, is the, and there, there are these animal-looking, kind of man-looking, weird hybrid thing that are just ravaging God's good world. And then he sees coming out of that this, this human-like figure who's being exalted above them. And so the context of this is really important because in the Old Testament, it's really clear that Jesus used this chapter to explain something about himself, the identity of who he was. And really it's what the whole Hebrew Bible is, is built on, is this concept of, of son of man. You see, the hope for, uh, for a humanity that would finally realize what they were supposed to do finally walk into the potential of what God had called them to do. In the very beginning, it was to subdue the earth. It was to rule the earth alongside of God. It was, as we talked several weeks ago, to bear the image of God. It was to trust him and to seek his word and, and to follow it. But see, as we know, the story goes that we didn't do that. In fact, we went our own way and we defined for ourselves what was good and what was evil. And what's really interesting in the Old Testament is there's a lot of imagery about animals when talking about our sin and human violence. The very next story, uh, Ab and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. Cain hates his brother. He's jealous of him. He's jealous that, that he's doing something for God that Cain can't quite get. And so he ends up murdering his brother. But before that, God says, careful, your sin is crouching at the door like this, like this animal. It's, it's, it's this beast within you. In the same uh, book of Daniel, there's a king who had taken over the Jews, and, and he was essentially trying to be God. And what happens is he's brought so low that he actually looks like this, this beast, this, this animal. And so there's this imagery, I mean, all throughout the prophets, the Psalms, talks about our sin, talks about human violence and, and, the, and the warring countries and nations of the world are like these beasts. And that's the context that Daniel sees here. And then he sees something like a human one, a son of man, one who is going to rule the world with righteousness and justice and glory is being exalted in the highest of places to rule alongside the Ancient of Days, and that's another name for, for God in the Old Testament. And Daniel sees all of this swirling around, and what's really important here is that that is what Christ came to do, is to do what you and I could not do, and it's to be the human who would completely follow God. He could only do that because he was God. So Daniel sees this, this divine human character who's been exalted and glorified. Paul says it too in, in Philippians uh, 2, 8 through 11. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. I mean, it's like parallel with Daniel 7 there exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the context of, of what 
the disciples would have would probably caught some of this. Right? They knew their Bible. But the implication here is that the church is first built on the glorification of Jesus. Exalted to the highest place. He is above all names. He's above all of us. He's above all the warring nations. Man, do we need to hear that right now? In an increasing, aggressive climate could go either way, and we need to remember that he is above all. In fact, he actually puts them there, and he holds them in his hand. It says that they're under his feet, and he's reigning over them. sovereignty of God. And all of this is going on in his head as he's saying this. He knows what's happening. He knows that he is about to be glorified. And for him, glorification was actually going to be on a cross of shame. He was going to be lifted high above every, everything. All the beasts and the power and the sin and death of the world were going to trample over him like Daniel 7 was showing. And all of that's going through his mind. But then he looks to his disciples And he says, little children, completely shifts. So verse 33, little children, I'm with you just a little while longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you can't come. I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Emotionally, I'm sure there is a ton going on right here in this scene. They lost their brother, Judas. He's going to portray their king, their their teacher. And then Jesus is talking about his death, being glorified and, and taken away to be slaughtered. I'm sure there's emotions of anger, confusion. It's just a chaotic situation. And then Jesus, knowing this, you can see the love in his heart. He turns to them, he says, little children. And why, why is that word so important? In Greek, it means technia. And, it, and, and little children, it's only used one time in this book, in John. And honestly, it's only used... A few other times in the New Testament, once in Galatians, and then seven other times in the letter that John would write later to the churches. This word, the way that Jesus described his disciples, was so profound to him. This whole scene was so, he was amazed by it. Their king was going to, to give up his life for them, and, and then he turns to them and he says, hey, Little children, a new command I give you. I don't think it's a coincidence that the only other time that word is used in his other letter. And it's also paired with this word, the new commandment. John's the only one that seems to to grab a hold of of these things. So what's, what's going on here? John wants us to see something about the identity of who Jesus is. And what he's called us to do. John would say in uh, 1 John 4, verse 10, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
So here's, here's something really important. I want us to get this because this is the point of John. He's trying to show us really the identity of who Jesus is. He has a high Christology. What that means is he has a high understanding and knowledge of, of the person and work of Jesus. Nowhere in his letters, in the book of John, or in, in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, does he say the words, love each other like Jesus loved you. And he's not diminishing the power of Jesus, but he's, he's trying to make a point here. He says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So he's making a connection here. Who else would tell their little children that he loves them? The Father. God. God would say to little children, I love you. I'm going to give everything for you. And so Jesus, using the same wording, little children, love each other like I love you, like who? Like God loves you. Jesus completely did the work of the Father. He could say those words because he had the authority. He was divine. He is God. And he could say to his disciples, little children, because it was God addressing them. And that's really important because we have to hang on the word of God and what Jesus calls us to do. It's not suggestions. It's than commandments. And he thought, and John thought back to the Last Supper with Jesus, and, and he saw God himself telling his little kids how much he loves them. And then, then he makes a switch, and he says, just as I have loved you, then you should love one another, because this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples. Before this, the disciples had walked with Jesus. The mark of their discipleship was just being with him. It was their physical presence. And Jesus is saying, listen, like, I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm about to be taken away, about to be murdered, and then eventually I'm going to be going to heaven away from you. And the mark of your discipleship is not going to be my physical presence anymore. The way that people will know that you're a follower of me is how you love one another as I have loved you. And now that he was leaving them, this had to be the manifestation of his love for them in them to the world because that's how the world was going to see that he was, his, that he was their king. John would say later in his, in his first letter, Beloved, let us not or let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I mean, he's internalizing this, and he's fleshing this out all throughout his first letter. We know, First uh, John 3, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. By this, First John 3, uh, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 2, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Love for each other confirms to the world that your profession in Jesus is real. 
John is all over this. Because in this scene, he saw, man, this is God. And he loves us. And people are going to know that we love Jesus if we love each other. But what makes this new? Is this a new commandment? What type of, and, and why is this type of sacrificial love, this one another, another love, why is it so compelling to the world? I don't think this is necessarily new. It's not, a, it's not a new commandment to love one another, but it's a new application of it. You see, the, the, the command to love one another goes all the way back to Leviticus. Leviticus um, excuse me, Leviticus 19.18, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would flesh that out again in the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And again, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, everything, all of the law, all the prophets, all the Bible, it hangs on these two things. So is this necessarily new? It sounds like the same thing. But he's saying the way that you apply it now, the way that it manifests itself in you, this is how the world is going to see that you actually believe in me. Acts 2 gives us a clue of of the community of Christ acting out this type of self-sacrificial love. Acts 2, 42 through 47 might have verse 41 on there. Um, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property. They sold possessions. They gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor. I'll read that again. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. This is the early church. They had, they had got this. They had seen what it meant and why it was so important to actually care for one another deeply. It, wasn't, it, was some, it was just as much for them confirming that they loved one another, that they've been changed by God, but the world saw it too. So they had favor with their community. Here's some characteristics. They ate together. Yep, heard that. We definitely do that. They gave money to one another. They gave, like, all their money <laughs> to one another to help those in need. They worshiped Jesus. They, they loved one another deeply. They studied God's word. They submitted to it, whatever it required. They prayed for each other in their community, and they multiplied because others wanted in on it. Their community was contagious. Their community, they had favor with it said that all people wanted to see what the heck was going on with, with these Christians, with these people that had claimed that, that this man who had died on a cross had changed everything about them. What the heck was going on? They were selling everything to, to, to help one another. They were caring for others. 
no matter where they came from or what they looked like, no matter what they believed, if they thought differently than them, it didn't matter. They bared with one another. And isn't that what everybody wants? It's just to be loved, <laughs> accepted, valued. I mean, it's, it's, this is some stuff from the very beginning. And just to take you back to the Son of Man, when, when Jesus came to do what you and I couldn't do, what he was showing us, is that real humanity, if you want to really be human, you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. And that can manifest itself in a lot of ways. But that's what he was modeling for us. This real humanity. It's so contagious because the world has no idea how to do it. I mean, take his disciples for an example. Ben talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. But they were so, they were diametrically opposed to one another politically. Heard that. <laughs> so are we. They were so different from one another. One guy loved Rome. He was a Jew and he sold out everybody and he loved Rome and he took people's money illegally to give to Rome. I mean, he was a Roman lover. And then there was another guy who wanted to kill Romans. Couldn't be any more different. I think this is like today probably Antifa and, what was it, Poe Boys? Is that, is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> like couldn't be any more opposed to one another. And yet they came into this community where people are like, man, what is going on? Why are they so, why do they have love for one another? And even more so in Acts 1, it talks about how they were of one mind and one accord because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had completely changed their priorities. And it was so contagious that people wanted to see what was going on. Knowing how to disagree with each other and bearing with one another. Even when you're right. <laughs> Even if you know you're right and somebody else is wrong, but knowing how to bear with them and love them, that is a love that the world doesn't know. And that is something that, that they so desperately need to see. It changes our priorities, and outsiders become insiders through the gospel of Jesus. Go back to John, 1 John 4, 11 through 13. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. I love how J.D. Greer says this. Uh, the love in the local church is the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible. The love of us, the love of the community of Christ, the way that we self-sacrifice for one another, bear with one another, disagree in love with one another, and care for one another, that shows the world that we actually believe this. It puts paint in a good coat of paint, not the paint that I put on my deck that I need to redo. It's the good coat of paint. It shows the world that, man, this... You need in on this, because this is life-changing. It's more than just, just imitation. Jesus is calling for participation in this. 
We don't just simulate Jesus, but his love for us manifests in us, and then we love others like we love ourselves. That's, that's something that we're trying to roll out here. These are like marks of a disciple, what we would call our healthy disciples. And I have a, I have a graph up there. Um, I think so. Yeah. So here's the thing. is based off of the greatest commandment. We want to love God completely. Right? And then loving ourselves correctly. That's one of the most underutilized part of that commandment. But when we love ourselves correctly, when we know who we were made in the image of God, knowing how much he loves us, then, then we can love others compassionately. I mean, it's just, it's hand in hand. This is how this works, is when we know who we were made to be, of course we would give up our life. Of course we'd give up our time, our talents, our treasures for the sake of the story of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Why would we not? This is who we were made to be. And when he's calling us to, to testify to the goodness of who he is, why would we not do that? Because his love, we know how much he has loved us. It's the, it's, the, it's the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible. And here's the question that, that Jesus leaves us with. It's in verses 36 through 38. Will we follow him by loving others like him? Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But you'll follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? <laughs> I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you? Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will crow three times, and you've, or I'm sorry, a rooster will not crow three times before you've denied me. So for Peter, following Jesus meant overthrowing Rome. That's why Jesus uses the term son of man because Messiah was so overly politicized it meant that he was going to come and establish the Jerusalem kingdom again. And Peter was willing to give his life for that cause. But when Jesus says, no, I'm going to a cross of shame and suffering, Peter denied him. But I love what Jesus does in John 21. We're going to get to this later, but I just want to brief at it now. He goes right to Peter. John was so captivated by this story that he includes it. It's nowhere else in the Gospels. But, but Jesus goes right to Peter and he says, do you love me? And he asks him that three times. Why? Because Peter denies him three times. And he says, do you love me? And I can hear the same question that he asked here in verses 36 to 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Will you self-sacrifice for the good of me. Will you love me, Peter? Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Because Jesus would say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. What Jesus would do for all of us, that night and that next morning, he would give up his life for his friends. He would give up his life for you and me. The Son of Man would be trampled by the powers of sin and death in the world. And he would experience all of that, the stuff that we brought into the world. 
through our disobedience of him, he would be trampled by it and then come out on the other side victorious and come back to life, having victory over sin and death, and he would ascend to the heavens. And he would rule over all kingdoms, establishing one of justice and mercy. And he would say, this type of love. Will you do this kind of love? Will you give your life for me? Am I the most important thing to you? Am I worth it to you? If persecution comes, and it, and it very well may, will, is Christ enough? That's something we have to answer because if we're built on that, then the gates of hell will not prevail. If we'll give our life for that, that can look a lot of different ways. It can look in, in giving your actual life like a lot of the disciples did. Peter would eventually die on a cross for proclaiming the gospel to a very hostile environment. For us, it could, it could be that. It could be just giving your time to actually want to pour into people and disciple people and to reach people. It could be giving your, your talents and serving. It could be giving your treasure, generosity, radical generosity for the sake of others. Is Christ worth it? When we understand the love of God is love for us, our greatest aim will be his story. I'll end with this. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. God lives in him, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. It will cost something. But that's a mark that we actually believe this, and that his love has taken root in our heart. And so it doesn't matter what happens. And if we can grab a hold of that and care for one another in the same way that God loved us, people want in on that. I'm going to close with this. This final illustration. Um, there was a woman in uh, 200, roughly 200 A.D. Uh, her name was Perpetua. And she lived in North Africa. Um, this was a, a, a place where Christianity was, was growing. Um, there was severe persecution by the Roman Empire. Uh, the emperor at the time, his, his name was Cerverus, Emperor Cerverus. Um, and he really ramped it up. He ramped up the persecution. He started uh, corralling Christians and throwing them into gladiator rinks for entertainment to kill them so that people could watch that. I mean, that was, that was their entertainment was seeing that. And so in the context of all this, Perpetua comes to faith in Jesus. She's the only one in her family that, that does. And she gets locked up. And her dad, and she had just had a kid at this point. And her dad comes to the prison. And he brings her child with her. And he says, are you willing to give up all of this? Your own child? Just renounce. Come back with us. Come live with us. This is foolishness what you're doing. You have a baby. And her friend, who was, who was with her as well, I don't know how you say it, Felicitas? <laughs> sure. Her friend was also pregnant. 
So these two women who were convinced that Christ was who he was were locked up. And Perpetua said to her dad, I can't. I can't go. I cannot renounce Christ because he is everything. And so giving up her family, her her baby, she stays in prison with her friend who, who gives birth in prison. And then they go on trial. It's a bogus trial, but they go on trial. They're sentenced to death. They're thrown in to the gladiator rink. And it's so bad. It's so gory that even the people watching them were shouting enough. They're like, this is so, like, this is not what we paid for. This is so bad. Stop this. And her final words before she's killed, man, it's John 13, give out to the word or give out the word to the brothers and sisters. Stand fast in the faith. Love one another. And don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. Because the way that you care for one another is going to show a world that doesn't know and have a framework for how to love one another that you are a follower of Jesus and he's worth it.